0: Lord Jesus, we come to your word this morning knowing, God, that this is one of the greatest ways we find you. We've not come just to hear some verses or hear some thoughts of a guy up front. We've come to meet with our risen king. So would you use this time, God? Would you meet with us? Would you, would you speak truth to our hearts? Would you make us more like you than we were when we walked in? Would you move us closer to you than we were before we came together this morning? Just come and have your way. May your kingdom come, may your will be done this morning as your body gathers. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are finishing up our series called Back to the Basics. It has been a long run. We started, I think, in the middle of August. Uh, and here we are just in time uh, for Thanksgiving to finish up. Uh, we have been looking through the statement of faith of the Christian Missionary Alliance, using this to kind of understand the basics of our theology. Theology is that kind of big, scary word for some people, but it literally just means our beliefs about God. The, the things that we believe about who God is and who we're to be in response So, as we've been going through this, I've been trying to just, uh, the phrase that I once heard, it's a deep theological phrase, and it's put the cookies on a lower shelf. Uh, Take some of these things that can be like kind of high and hard to get a hold of sometimes, and people use big words, and try to just make them really real and practical for us to be able to understand. This is the, the basis of what it is to follow Jesus, to believe what the scriptures teach. So we've been working our way through. There's 11 statements in total. Uh, Number nine took us two separate weeks to work on because it was so much of it. We're kind of going the opposite way today, and we're going to look at two in one week uh, because these two, it's really hard to separate them. They're kind of two sides of the same coin, uh, and so we're going to put them uh, together this morning. So statement number 10 says this. There shall be a bodily resurrection of the just and the unjust, the, for the former, a resurrection unto life. For the latter, a resurrection unto judgment. And then statement 11, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is imminent and will be personal, visible, and premillennial. So we're going to look at the end times. Do you guys want to learn a big theological word so you can like impress people at a Christian dinner party? Non-Christians are going to be like, Why are you, what are you talking about? But you guys want to learn a word? Yep. Eschatology. That's the, the theological term that really just means the study of the end times. But imagine yourself sitting, like, you're getting some buffalo chicken dip, and you're like, well, eschatologically speaking, you will get yourself some bonus points. I wouldn't actually recommend doing it. Uh, you look super pretentious. Um, so don't try it. But eschatology is kind of the theological term for just the study of the end times, the, the times that Jesus comes back for. And that's what we're looking at here today. And, and in the words of my friend Indigo Montoya, let me explain. no there's too much. Let me sum up. We are not going to be going through all of the details and the orders of event, and, and it's going to look like this, and it's going to happen all in this exact sequence. We're not getting into that. Uh, to be honest, I don't think there's a ton of fruit that comes uh, from trying to parse out exactly what those end times look like, but we're going to look at, again, the basics, some of those, those bedrock things that we believe are going to happen and then start to look at how they impact our lives. So let's begin to break this down uh, as we've been doing. It starts with, there shall be a bodily resurrection of the just and of the unjust. So looking ahead, one day in the future, there will be a bodily, physical, like, actually happen, not just some, like, spiritualized resurrection, but like an actual physical resurrection. The just And the unjust. So let me ask this question, and if you're newer here, we talk a lot amongst ourselves during the messages. Uh, I don't believe I'm the only one who can hear from the Holy Spirit or who has thoughts on this, and so we want to take time and actually learn from one another as well. What does it mean when it says just and unjust? Because let's be real, we all do just things and unjust things, Right? There's none of us that have nailed this and we only ever act justly, rightly, in the right way. And there's no one who only ever does the wrong, unjust thing. So, so what does it mean when it says the just and the unjust? Let's learn from each other. Does it mean like justified those who haven't been justified? Okay, does it mean justified and those who haven't been justified? What do you think? Okay. It's more of like a deeper meaning of like, yeah, we're all gonna make some wrong choices sometimes, but like what's really going on in our heart, okay? What are your thoughts? Just and unjust? Those that have Jesus. they looked Jesus and he has them, saved them, versus those they had not sought him. Okay. Okay, so the just would be those that have been redeemed. That, that word redeemed means, means bought back, purchased back by Jesus and are kind of in right standing with him. And the unjust are those that have not sought Jesus for that redemption. Okay, any other thoughts? I, I think it's important here to understand this. The reason that I ask this question is because we have to kind of look past actions, this isn't just about, again, those who did more just things than they did unjust things. That's, that's a, there's a lot of other religions out there that teach, there's almost like this, this cosmic scale. And as long as your just actions outweigh your unjust actions, you're okay. But if the scale tips in the unjust side, like you're toast, that's not what this is talking about. In the scripture, this word just, it's used justified. Just is not something that we do we have been justified. Justified is actually this legal term that means declared innocent. It comes from, picture like a a courtroom scene. When when someone is declared innocent, not guilty, they are justified. They're seen as, as clean, as not guilty. And so what this is talking about is there are those that have been justified before God and those that have not been justified before God. Romans chapter five talks a lot about this. Paul says in in verse one, therefore, since we have been justified, declared innocent through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We have been justified through faith, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And now comes this outpouring of hope and even this boasting. And man, You can't believe what God has done on my behalf. A few verses later, he says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? But there's this declared innocent, I no longer have to fear judgment because it's been taken care of for me. It doesn't say now that we've cleaned ourselves up enough, But by our faith in what Jesus has done on the cross, we've been justified, declared innocent, just. And we no longer have to fear wrath. While we were still sinners, before we were even able to act justly, Jesus came and died for us. He declared us innocent by a substitutionary death on a cross. He took our place. So there's no more wrath for those of us who follow Christ to fear. But there's also the flip side of that coin, the unjust, those who have not been justified. Again, picture that courtroom scene. And we're going to come back to this a couple of times this morning. Standing before the judge, and for those of us that have been justified, the list of all the wrongs we do are read. And he says, now, who's going to pay for this? And before the gavel can come down, Jesus says, I will. They're innocent. I'll take the punishment. I will take the wrath we call this sometimes the great exchange. He took our sin and the punishment that came with it, and instead he put on us his righteousness. So that when God looks at us, he sees every good thing that Jesus did, and all of the bad stuff that we do was put on Jesus. He took the punishment. That makes sense? But then there's the other side. Those that stand up, and the list of their life is read out, and God says, okay, who's going to pay this penalty? And they have no one to stand for them. Who's left carrying the bag? Who's left to deal with the punishment, the wrath that comes from sin? It's themselves. They have not been justified through faith in Jesus. Now hear me, when I talk about this, this is not something that like, hey, this is just your destiny, like can't, we all have been given that choice. If you hear my voice today, you are hearing that there is an option to put faith in Jesus and to receive justification, to be declared innocent because he took your punishment for you. Some will not choose that. And they remain unjustified, carrying the bag themselves. So there shall be a bodily resurrection of the just and of the unjust. For the former, for the just, it's a resurrection unto life. For the latter, for the unjust, it's a resurrection unto judgment. Like we have to understand, we're all going to one day stand before God and give an account for our lives. Every single person, just unjust alike. Hebrews 9.27 says this, people are destined to die once and after that face judgment. This is something we've all got coming. We're, we're all going to leave this earthly plane in one way or another and we're going to stand before the King of Kings. 2 Corinthians, Paul says it like this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We're all going to stand and give an account of the life that we have lived, but there's two different kinds of judgment. John, Jesus teaches like this in John chapter 5. Do not be amazed at this, teaching about the things that will come. He says, Because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to a resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to a resurrection of judgment. We all have this standing before God in our future. The question is, will it be as justified or as unjustified? Revelations chapter 20 gives kind of a picture of what that judgment will look like. And listen, in some ways it's kind of terrifying. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. And I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. We don't talk a whole lot about hell here. It's not popular, quite frankly. I don't enjoy talking about it. I tend to cry in front of people when I talk about hell. But he's saying there's going to come a judgment, and the things that are at stake is eternal separation from God or eternal life with God. And so, again, you picture this courtroom scene coming before the judge's throne, and he says, let's open the books, let's balance the accounts, and let's see what we got here. And everything is read, everything that we've done is read. But then there's this beautiful thing. There's the second thing called the book of life that is open. And if your name is found in the book of life, it doesn't matter what's read in the other books, you're in. Because these are all of the people whose sin has already been dealt with through Jesus. These are all of the people that were justified before they even walked in the courtroom today. And if your name is in the book of life, I don't care what's in the other books, you're in. Because Jesus took care of it for you. But if your name is not found in the book of life, eternal hellfire, the lake of fire. Paul in 2 Thessalonians says that it's eternal separation from God and his majesty. Like that's what's at stake here. The disciples, when they were following Jesus, there's this one point in ministry where he sends them out and he says, he gives them power and he says, now go and do some of the miraculous things you've seen me do and go teach people that the kingdom of God is near. And so they go out, when they come back, they're telling him all these crazy stories. We cast out demons, we healed the sick, like that we had power and it was crazy. And here's what Jesus tells them. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. Look, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will ever harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He's going, look, when it all comes down to it, this stuff is good. And and he empowered them for a reason. He said, go and advance the kingdom But remember, the foundational piece is not look at the cool stuff we can do. The foundational piece is your name's been written in the book of life. When everything else is read, the good you've done, the bad you've done, the only thing that it's really going to come down to is has your name been written in the book because you've put your faith in me. This is the crux. There's, There's two kinds of people in this world and in the next world those who have put their faith in Jesus and been justified by him, who will be resurrected unto life with him, and those who have not, and who will be separated from him for eternity in hell. And I don't say this to scare you. I say it because it's true. Jesus again says, I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but it's passed from death to life. Those who receive the promise of Jesus, we don't fear wrath anymore. We don't look at that day of standing before the king with wringing hands going, oh no, what's he going to find? What's going to be in the book? We look forward to that day because that's the day we enter into eternal life. I don't have judgment or wrath to fear anymore. When I stand before the king on that day, it's going to be a matter of measuring out reward like the, the scripture uses ter- terms like uh, like crowns in heaven and jewels in our crowns and all this, which like, what does that mean? I don't know. And I don't think it's super important. But the point being, when I stand before him, it will be to receive a reward from my king, not to receive judgment from him. Is this making sense, church? I'm getting a lot of stares. It, this, this topic has some gravity to it. And so kind of just some staring is, is okay. But is this making sense? Romans 2, Paul talking about that same day says, "'He will repay each one according to his works, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and indignation to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth, but are obeying unrighteousness, affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jews and also to the Greeks, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. He says there's there's this separation. Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats that are separated on that day, one to life, one to judgment. I'm using a lot of scripture passages here today, not because you need to memorize all of these and like that's not very important. I want you to see how pervasive this is in scripture. It is everywhere, it's in every book of scripture, this talking about one day, what will happen. One day we will stand before the king and give an account. One day there will be this resurrection. It is all throughout the New Testament. It's not just something that we read about in Revelation. And how many of you ever read Revelation and went, Whew, there's a there's a dragon a lot of times and that a lot of horns blowing. And like it is easy to read Revelation and go, wow. I I honestly don't know what is happening here. And so sometimes that we focus on that and we go, yeah, yeah, that's the book that talks about the end times. But we kind of have this, but who can really understand it kind of thing. But when it comes to the truth that Jesus is coming back, that there will be a resurrection, that we will stand before the King and give an account, it is all throughout Scripture. So as I read, I'm going to be reading a lot of Scripture passages today. Don't get overwhelmed by them again. You don't have to memorize them all. I'm simply trying to illustrate how pervasive this is in the Word of God. So there shall be a bodily resurrection of the just and the unjust. For the former, a resurrection unto life. For the latter, a resurrection unto judgment. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is imminent. Now, real quick, second coming means what? There had to be a first coming. What was the first coming of Christ? Christmas. These are those easy ones. You get just to get people like some confidence. Yeah, I can answer a question. Christmas. Christmas is the first time that Jesus came to this earth. The first time he came, though, people had a really hard time believing it because it wasn't what they expected. The king of kings is coming to earth. They expected the pomp and the circumstance. And what did they get instead? They got something that happened in secret, in a little-known village, kind of out of the way. This helpless baby, the king of kings, the one who spoke the world into existence coming in the form of a helpless baby, and then to grow up and be a suffering servant, the world looked at the first coming and went, no, that's not how a king comes into the world. That's not how a king comes and establishes a kingdom. And they went, I can't believe it. It's too different from what I thought. Now the second coming, I think the world looks at it and goes, it's a little too much of what I thought. It's a little too strong. Maybe he could back it off. Maybe he could. Maybe there's a third coming where he can meet us somewhere in the middle. Like, we struggle because it's going. It was either too small for us or it's just too big for us. The second coming of Jesus will be in power as the King of Kings. Sure. Listen to this passage from Revelation and don't there's there's symbolism and don't get caught up in it. Just kind of let the, the majesty of this wash over you. When the king comes back the second time, the world will stand up and take notice. He will come as a conquering king, riding on a horse with an army of saints behind him. It, it, even how it starts there, I saw heaven standing opened. The sky opened up and the king of kings rode in. His second coming will be nothing like the first coming. He will come back as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in power. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is imminent. That word imminent has a couple of different meanings, a couple of different ways that we could look at it. One way means sudden and at any moment. Something is imminent, like it could happen at any time. Uh, Jesus talks in, in Matthew 24, he says, Now concerning that day, the, the day that he will return. That day and hour no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father only. As in the days of Noah, or as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. So this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. The two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken. One will be left. There's this idea that like we don't know. It could happen quickly. Where people We're just living lives. And if you're not paying attention, all of a sudden, we, where'd they go? What happened? There's this suddenness that Jesus is talking about. There's another way of looking at this word imminent. And it means impending. It's inevitable. It's kind of overhanging. There is nothing that will stop this from happening. We don't know when. Could be soon, could be later, but we agree that this could happen anytime. The moment is pregnant with the opportunity for Jesus to return. The second coming of Jesus Christ is imminent, and it will be personal, visible, and premillennial. Let me break these down personal and visible. I kind of said this a minute ago. It's not going to be some secret thing that happens. It's not going to be some, like, just, it means something spiritual. It's kind of an allegory. It would be like the king coming back, like, it's actually going to happen. Jesus is going to come back and bring his saints with him. We will be bodily resurrected, like, it's going to be a real event that happens. It's not just telling a story to try to get some other point across. He's going, no, no, no. It's really going to happen. It's going to be personal, and it's going to be visible. Jesus teaching in Luke 21, he says, at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and with great glory. They being the world. Over in Matthew, in kind of a parallel passage, 24, he says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory He will send out his angels with loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. This is not some secret whisking away in the middle of the night. Everyone be quiet. But when the king comes back, the world will see. It will be personal. It will be visible. And then there's this word premillennial. This is one I don't want to get too hung up on again. This is a, a doctrinal theological term that I don't think should be in the statement of faith here. The statement of faith is, again, like, who can be a part of us? Like, if you're going to be licensed with the Christian Missionary Alliance, like I am, you have to agree that the coming of Jesus will be premillennial. I'll tell you what that is in a minute. Point being, there's other options, and we can agree, be in lockstep on every one of them. But if we think that this future thing might look differently, as of right now, you can't be a pastor, with the Alliance. Or if this is the stance your church takes, your church can't become an Alliance church. This is something we're in the process of bringing up on a national level and going, do we need to take this out? Do we need to change this? Is this really something that's worth breaking fellowship with other brothers and sisters over? In my opinion, it's not. I'm voting to to take this piece out. But for now, it's in there. And So let me explain very quickly what premillennial means. There's this Passage in Revelation 20, which we'll look at here in a minute, that talks about this thousand year reign of Jesus on this earth. If you take, there's a literal way to take it or there's an allegorical way, which is kind of like it it represents something greater. So we take a very literal sense that goes, Jesus is gonna come back and for a thousand years, literally king on this earth, ruling and reigning, and the saints will be reigning with him. That's a a premillennial view. There's other ways to go, hey, maybe that thousand years is like when I talk about something, I go, yeah, there was like a million of them. I'm really just trying to go, it was a long time. And so maybe that thousand years just means, hey, for a long time, Jesus is going to reign. But it didn't mean one day in the future, but actually how he reigns in the church now. And so there's some different ways to look at this passage. I'm going to go through it because it's in the statement of faith. But my point being, whether you read it and you go, yeah, that's where I am, or you think something different, it's not really worth getting hung up on. Understand? Okay, so let me read this passage. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with a key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for 1,000 years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the 1,000 years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and all the people on them were given authority to judge. I also saw people who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word, who had not worshipped the beast or his image. Some other like uh, imagery in Revelation, talking about those those incredibly difficult days that are coming. They had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and they reigned with the Messiah for 1,000 years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of the Messiah, and they will reign with him for 1,000 years. So the stance of the alliance is that this is a literal 1,000 years that will happen one day. Jesus will come back, gather up all his people, bring the armies of heaven onto earth, and he will reign for 1,000 years. If you believe something different, hear me. I don't care. I don't think this is something worth holding on to super tight-fisted. The the details of all this. Do I believe that King Jesus will come and reign? Yes. Do I believe that he is reigning in the hearts of his people now? Yes. Do I believe that there will come a day when old heaven and old earth go away, and a new heaven and new earth, and we spend eternity with him in perfection? Yes. The details of how and exactly when and all of that are not really worth arguing over. John chapter 17 is the passage you were looking for earlier about the unity of the church and how the world will take notice. There's a lot of opportunity for us to divide when it comes to our beliefs on what the future events will look like, but there's not a whole lot that's gained from it. Jesus is going to come back, amen? Amen. He will take his people with him, Amen? amen? There's going to be a judgment faced by those who don't know him, amen? We've got a job to do. I don't have time to worry about dates and whether it's this order or this order. We've got stuff to be about. So it's in the statement of faith, so I wanted to address it. But quite frankly, it's not worth worrying about. Not, not in, in, in figuring out the minute details of it. So there shall be a bodily resurrection of the just and of the unjust. For the former, a resurrection unto life. For the latter, a resurrection unto judgment. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is imminent and will be personal, visible, and premillennial. So let me ask this question. Let's, Let's talk again amongst ourselves. Why is all of this so important to believe? Why is this so prevalent in Scripture? Again, it's not just, okay, the book of Revelation is kind of dedicated to it, which it is, but we find it in almost every book in the New Testament Why is this so important? Why did they keep bringing it up, Paul and John and Jesus? Why did they keep talking about this as if it's something of kind of the the foundational importance? Okay, so this is definitely tied to our mission. The Great Commission that she's talking about, Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and I am with you to the very end of the age. He says, here's your mission. Go and make disciples and help people to follow Jesus, baptizing new believers. But then there's also all these other promises of one day I'm coming back again. How do these two things tie into each other? How do they play off of each other? I, I wholeheartedly agree that they do. Yeah, like sure. God, so, sure. He'll so never be. yeah. So part of this, he's coming back one day, like. Part of that goes right into, because we believe he's still alive now. He didn't stay dead in the tomb. He didn't, like, walk for 40 days on this earth and then go, all right, I'm kind of out and done. I might as well be dead. Like, he's alive and well and one day coming back. Part of it is that promise that, like, he hasn't given up. He's still working. He's still moving. He's still in control. Okay? Jamie, you were going to say something? Yeah. Right. Yeah. How many of you like soccer in here? Weird. You're going to have to explain to me why you like soccer. Um, But good for you. I'm in the minority when it comes to the world. Here's one of the most stressful things to me about soccer I don't actually know how long the game is. Are you guys familiar with something called stoppage time? So uh, the clock just keeps running. The ball goes out of bounds and all this. The clock just keeps running. They have, what is it, 60 minutes in a whole game? 90. 90, it's even longer, oh gosh. So they have 90 minutes. But then at the end, there's this thing called stoppage time because the ref was keeping track of how long the game was stopped for, but he doesn't tell anyone else. And so literally, then you get into stoppage time and the game just goes until the ref blows the whistle and it ends. They can guess and they can go, okay, I think there's, we got about seven and a half minutes of stoppage time. But it's actually 8.16. They didn't know. They had 45 extra, like, it's so stressful to me because I'm like, how much time is left in the game? How much time does my team have to come back? And we're kind of in that same thing where Jesus goes, it is imminent. It could happen at any time, any season This could come, and I'm actually not going to tell you when. He he said in a passage we looked at in Matthew 24, no one knows. Jesus, while here on this earth, he said, even I don't know. Only the Father knows when that day will come. So you got to get on your mission. There is no just putting this off because he's coming back, and we don't know exactly when it will be. Okay, other thoughts? Mm-hmm. Peter talks about it, and I believe it's 2 Peter, where he says, look, Jesus isn't slow in coming back. The fact that it's taking longer than some people thought doesn't mean, like, he's just slow to act. He's actually being really patient. He says he's not counting men's sins against them right now. He's, he's pushing pause on the judgment piece to give everyone an opportunity to hear, but he also wants to know there's a day coming when the judge just can't turn a blind eye to it. There has to be a judgment. There has to be an accounting for what we do we don't know when that day is, it's it's that imminent peace, but we believe there's a day when the judge who is righteous and good will say, No more. It's time to settle the books, because he is a just God. He can't just ignore it. Any other thoughts? Sure. And it also shows where those two paths lead And it, it really debunks the myth that those who aren't justified will just be kind of pooped out of existence. Mm-hmm. But they will face an eternal punishment. Right. I guess forever and ever, which is eternal. Yeah. If there was one thing, and I've said this before, that I could change about scripture, if if God said, Okay, fine, you get one thing, I would erase hell. It it might just be, okay, those that don't follow Jesus, they just go to sleep and never wake up or something like that. We're not afforded that by Scripture. We're told there is one foundational piece. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Did you put your faith in Jesus or not? In the end, that's truly the only question. And there is a very definite reality in eternity for those that did and for those that didn't. And this really does kind of help boil things down. Like you said, there's so many things in life that are kind of gray and kind of, this is... Is your name in the book or not? Have you put your faith in Jesus or not? It really does become that black and white for us. Let me let me finish. There's a line that I didn't read to you that is in that final statement. There shall be a bodily resurrection for the just and the unjust. For the former, a resurrection unto life; for the latter, a resurrection unto judgment. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is imminent. Will be personal, visible, and premillennial. This is the believer's blessed hope and is a vital truth, which is an incentive to holy living and faithful service. This is what you guys were just describing, that this is the blessed hope for believers. Do we fear the day that Jesus will come back, those of us whose names are written in the book of life? No, we listen to it. How many times have you heard somebody talking and they're going, man, what if he came back today? Wouldn't it be great? This world is so broken and I'm so tired, man. And we have this hope that one day he's going to come back and he's going to make all things right. But there's that eminence that is a vital truth and it's incentive to holy living and faithful service. Paul says this to his friend Titus, for the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. The the foundation for why should we care how we live is one day the King is coming back. And we're going to stand before him. It is our blessed hope that one day he will come and rescue us from this broken, sinful world, But also I'm going to stand and give an account before my king who has called me eager to do good works, who is cleansing me for himself. And I don't want to look at him and go, I chose to sit on my hands instead of partnering with you. One day the king is coming back. We're called to be a people who live with the end in mind. See, but here's the problem. Our eyes naturally gravitate towards what's right in front of us. We naturally gravitate to the here and now in this human world. And again, just naturally speaking, we start to look for human solutions. We start to put our hope on things now in this life when we forget that a day is coming. When we forget to live with the end in mind, we begin to put our hope in earthly things. We'll look for things in this world to satisfy us, like like jobs. If I could just find the right job everything would be better. If I could just make enough money, if I just had enough to do this or to get that or just to not even worry anymore, everything would be better. We start to put it in relationships, whether it's finding the right person or not or or even our relationships, like super meaningful ones, with our children, with our spouse. We put our hope in there, but can they sustain the weight of our hope? They can't. Your spouse will never satisfy you. Your children will never be successful enough in everything where you can go, I have no more worries. They're not meant to sustain the weight of your hope. Man, a tricky one that doesn't sound like it belongs on this list, but for some reason, politics. We start to believe if I could just get the right people in office, they would fix things and everything would be better. If I could just, and listen, I don't care what side of the line you're on or whatever. We're we're coming into Thanksgiving. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard, Thanksgiving can be stressful at times. And we all kind of have that one uncle or whoever it might be who loves to bring up politics. And, there, and there's this kind of strife and these arguments that start to come. Do you know why we start to feel that kind of angst well up inside of us? Because we've put our hope in politics. We've put our hopes in those things. And when somebody comes up and questions it, all of a sudden the foundation for my hope starts to get shaken. And listen, we can agree and and disagree on different things. I do think that there is a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. Like, I'm not saying politics doesn't matter, but there's a reason we feel so threatened when somebody disagrees or brings up a different way, and it's because we've attached our hope to that thing, and it was never meant to be. My hope is in the fact that one day the King of Kings will come back and make all things right. And yes, we talked a couple weeks ago, like I'm going to vote according to to my conscience and I'm going to pray and seek God's leading for those things or whatever. But my hope is not that the right side wins. And that was not right as in right and left. My hope is not in if they can just get in office, they'll fix things and then everything will be better. No, it won't. It will still be broken. Politics can't support the weight of my hope. I will continually be let down. But putting my hope in the fact that one day my king is coming back, that my king sees all the decisions I make, that he is is watching me to look to reward me, to come along and to strengthen me. That is worth putting your hope in. That can sustain the weight of it, regardless of all these other circumstances that we have. I'm going to read a couple passages just pretty quickly talking about this hope that we have and how it is so uniquely tied To that day that Jesus will come back. Paul, in Acts 24, he is in chains standing before the judge, about to be sent to prison for years until eventually he's beheaded. And here's what he says I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive to always keep my conscience clear before God and man. He goes, Look, my situation sucks. This is not where I saw myself being. This is not where I want to be. But here is my hope, that Jesus is coming back one day. And so in light of that, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of my imprisonment and impending death, I strive to live in a way that keeps my conscience clear before God. Because one day I'm going to stand and give an account. The author of Hebrews says you need to to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For, and then he quotes, in a little while, he who is coming will come and he will not delay that imminence. And but my righteous one will, will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. And listen to what the author says. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Because we believe that one day our king is coming back and I, I will not be found shrinking back. I will have faith. I will be bold and live, like Paul said, in a way that my conscience is clear before my God because I look forward to the day when my king comes back. John says, dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we have, excuse me, what we will be has not yet been revealed. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Do you see how it's always leading towards holy living? It's always leading toward doing the will of God as we look to the future, to the day when Jesus is coming back. It will always lead us toward hope and conviction in the best possible way. Hebrews 11. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God for the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. When my king comes back, it's not to bring judgment on me. I don't fear that day at all. My king comes back to reward me for faithful service. It is okay to look forward to the rewards of heaven. It kind of feels selfish, like, shouldn't I just serve Jesus just because? Whether he chooses to reward me or not, he goes, look, I know your hearts. I made you to delight in the things that I give, and I want you to know. In fact, it's paramount that you believe that I reward those that seek me. A day will coming when I come and I pour out the rewards of heaven on you. Look forward to that day, and may it build up faith within you. We must be a people that learn to live with the ends in mind. Let me, let me finish with a parable that Jesus teaches. He actually teaches this parable in a number of different ways. It's kind of the same story. He just changes the characters a little bit. There is always a master or a king who has gone away for a little while, and his servants were put in charge. And in the story, he always comes back at a time when they didn't know he'd be coming back. And there's some that were found doing the things he called them to do. And there's some that got lazy, and they started using the king's resources for their own good and all this stuff. And when they when the king came back, it was not a good day for those slaves, for those servants. In in Matthew 25, there's the parable of the talents. The king is going away. And so he calls up his servants and he says, okay, I'm going to be gone for a while. Who knows how long I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to give you some of my resources to use while I'm gone. And so to one, he gives five talents of silver. And a talent doesn't mean like they could sing and dance, but like it was, it was like a, a weight of measure. So he says, I'm going to give you five units of silver. Go, do my work. And then to the next one, he gives two. And to the final one, he gives one. He's gone for a time, and the first two are faithful, and they go, I know my king is coming back, and I want to have something to show for it when he does. And so they put his money to work, and when the king comes back, he goes, show me what you've done. And the first one says, look, I took your five, and I turned it into ten. I worked hard while you were gone, because I knew you'd be coming back, and I wanted to have something to show for it. And the king says, well done, good and faithful servant. And in verse 23, his master's reply, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Listen to this. Come and share in your master's happiness. Come and rejoice with me. So then he goes to the one who was given two. And he says, okay, show me what you got. And he said, okay, I took your two and I turned it into four. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. And finally, there's the one that he gave the one talent to. And he goes, look, didn't really know if you were coming back or not. Didn't really trust you, so I just buried it. Here's the thing you gave me. I I didn't really do anything with it. And the master says, you wicked servant. Take what he has and give it to the one who has 10 and throw this man out of my presence. He was not faithful with what I gave him. He didn't really believe The truth that I would be coming back and that there would be an account one day and so he decided to sit and do nothing he just did what seemed best to himself and he was cast out of the king's presence we need to be a people who live with the end in mind because the king will come back his desire is that it is a blessed day of reward rejoicing and happiness but only if we live with the end in mind and we begin to live a life worthy of the calling that he has given us Jesus is coming back one day, and we've got a mission. We have to be about carrying out that mission. He could come back later today. He could come back 500 years from now. I don't know, but I want to be caught aware when he comes back. I want to be the the servant who is polishing the silver because he's coming back one day. I don't know when it'll be, but I want this place to be ready for him. This is the calling of his children. I'm going to ask the music team to come up. We're going to sing a song called You Keep Hope Alive. And I think that, back to I think it was Andrea who said, like, the promise that he is coming back is the promise that he is still alive and working today. The reason that we have this hope is because Jesus is still alive and well on his throne. Let's recognize that in song, and then let's go from this place and live as if that is true. Amen, church? Would you stand? Let's sing together.